Beloved brethren of the Lord, we return to Philippians and we open up a new chapter, chapter 4, and we're only going to look at verse 1. And primarily while I'm, why I'm doing it that way is because I think verse 1 is more a conclusion to chapter 3 than it is an introduction to chapter 4, although uh, it certainly is a transition to chapter 4, and it's interesting to see how it's setting up verses 2 and 3 very tactfully, uh, as a lot of the commentators say. But we're going to start with ver- just verse 1 this evening. Philippians chapter 4, verse 1, hear now the word of the Lord. Actually, before I read, I I think I won't do this uh, for sake of time, but I was thinking of reading all of chapter 3 into this verse. Ah, let's do it. Let's do it. I think think that'll be effective and helpful for us. Let's do it. Sorry, I had forgotten I was planning on that. Chapter 3, verse 1 of chapter 4 is our verse tonight, but let's let's see how it really does seem to apply and conclude chapter 3. Finally, my brother, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you, to me, indeed, is not grievous, but for you it is safe. Beware of dogs, beware of evil workers, beware of the concision. For we are the circumcision, which worship God in the Spirit, and rejoice in Christ Jesus, and have no confidence in the flesh. Though I might also have confidence in the flesh, if any other man thinketh that he hath, whereof he might trust in the flesh, I more... Circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, and Hebrew of the Hebrews, as touching the law of Pharisee. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church, touching the righteousness which is in the law, blameless. But, when, but what things were gained to me, those I counted loss for Christ. Yea, doubtless, and I count all things but loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. For whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and do count them but dung, that I may win Christ, and be found in him, not having my own righteousness which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ, the righteousness which is of God by faith, that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means I might attain unto the resurrection of the dead, not as though I had already attained, either were already perfect, but I follow after, if that I may apprehend that for which also I am apprehended of Christ Jesus. Brethren, I count not myself to have apprehended, but this one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forth unto those things which are before. I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. Let us therefore, as many as be perfect, be thus minded. And if in anything ye be otherwise minded, God shall reveal even this unto you. Nevertheless, whereto we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. Brethren, be followers together of me, and mark them which walk so as ye have us for an ensample. For many walk, of whom I have told you often, and now tell you even weeping, that they are the enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction 
whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame, who mind earthly things. For our conversation is in heaven, from whence also we look for the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who shall change our vile body, that it may be fashioned like unto his glorious body, according to the working whereby he is able even to subdue all things unto himself. Therefore, my brethren... Dearly beloved and longed for, my joy and crown, so stand fast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. I submit that to you as kind of completion of chapter 3, certainly transitioning into chapter 4, what follows in chapter 4. But all there that's been said, stand fast together, knowing you have the victory knowing you will be victorious completely. I think particularly having in view the, the end of uh, the chapter, when there are those whose end is destruction, that we need to be careful not to walk with them, not to be on the wrong race and, and walk with them. We were told last week to be careful who we follow because there's two different ways of walking, and those two different ways have two different destinations. So I think it follows very well that verse 1 of chapter 4 is really saying, therefore, all of that being said, with all of those things going against you, with all of those that he particularly focuses at the end, not just trying to slow you down or maybe inadvertently slow you down, deliberately trying to stop you, stand fast. That's the command in the verse, stand fast. But it's in the context of standing with your brothers, your dearly beloved brothers in the Lord. Again, this verse is considered by many to be the introduction of what follows. But I think as we just read through the chapter to the end, you see it and it feels um, like really the closing of chapter 3, certainly transitioning through to chapter 4. Remember the Bible, its chapter numbers and its uh, verse divisions are not original to the text. They were put in later on. Uh, I'm not trying to say that's a bad thing, but sometimes it can kind of skew how we might uh, better look at uh, a transition where text is similarly in Deuteronomy. Uh, I uh, argued that verses 1 to 3 of chapter 6 were concluding chapter 5. Um, but it doesn't change anything about God's inspired word. It's just that those numbers are something to be aware of. They're, they're not inspired. The numbering's not inspired. And we want to look at how things go together in terms of language uh, and, uh, and argument. So it would seem to me that uh, while it does transition into chapter 4, It's a conclusion of chapter 3. The therefore can refer to what's coming, but I think often refers to what is before the text. Now, Paul has been mixing uh, some metaphors here. He he often gives us this image of running a race, and that's kind of leading to where we are tonight. But he also uh, involves speaking in military actions, and we're going to see how there's some, some military illusion here. In this case, he calls upon the troops in the Philippian church to hold their ground there. And as it relates to what we remember in chapter 1, in all they're doing to help him where he is, holding the ground of the gospel. You know, Maybe it's almost more like running laps, knowing they've already technically won. And so they're protecting their turf together. As a family, they're holding the home front secure. And remember, Paul's writing from a distance. He loves them. They've had a lot involved. He was the missionary there. Some information about that in Acts particularly. And he's encouraging them, hold your ground. He's been saying, run the race, but also be ready to hold your ground. 
Christian brethren and Christian love are to stand together in the love of the Lord. I'll give that to you as the main sense of our verse tonight, chapter 4, verse 1. Christian brethren in Christian love are to stand together in the love of the Lord. Frank Thielman writes this, Those who live within the sphere of Christ's lordship are equipped to overcome circumstances that would dishearten unbelievers and disrupt disrupt their friendships. It's because we're in Christ and the love of the Lord and how we're supposed to hold each other above ourselves, esteem one another better, and not only our own interests but those of others, all in chapter 2, that we stay together because there's strength in numbers. And Christ being equipped in his lordship helps us to overcome the kind of things that will break down other relationships. Christ allows us to stand, and in Christ we're called to stand as brethren fighting the good fight of faith. So you, beloved brethren, stand firm together in Christian love. That's the message for you this evening from this text. Stand firm together in Christian love. Hold your ground in Christ's love. Hold your ground in Christ's love. You know, posture matters in battle. Uh, you don't really see uh, someone, if you, I mean, I've never watched a real battle. I hope none of us ever will have to. I know some of you have served, and thank you for your service. But if you're in battle, and you think especially of, you know, other earlier times, your posture matters. If you're, uh, if you're sitting on your duff, <laughs> or if you're maybe kneeling just on one knee, you're not really in a pretty good position to not be knocked right over <laughs> by the enemy, right? Posture matters. Uh, you know, maybe if you're sitting and you have a gun or, you know, a big uh, artillery that requires a different posture to shoot it. But generally speaking, you don't want to be caught sitting or kneeling. You need to be caught what? Standing, standing ready. And the way you stand with your knees bent a little bit to be able to bear things, your feet spread apart properly and firmly planted in the ground. When I wrestled in high school, we spent a lot of time just knowing how to stand properly so somebody can't easily take you down, sometimes just grabbing you by the head because you're not in the proper standing posture. And so you can't stand fast. You can't stand firm as it could be translated. Paul called for humility, for unity, following the example of Christ himself, Timothy Epaphrodites. He's also called for an ongoing race of striving after more Christ-likeness and never being slowed down, not letting our past successes, not letting immature Christians or godless quote-unquote Christians to slow us down or even stop us. That's what he's just been calling us to do particularly. And now he calls on them to stand fast. Or in the Greek, you could just as much translate it, stand firm. I think that's probably helpful to hear because fast, you might think of movement. and Actually, this is planting it. Ready, bearing yourself up against an attack. He says, stand fast, stand firm. Jay Montgomery Boyce explains that this call to stand fast or stand firm together is a military metaphor And that, quote, the Christian is not so much to advance into battle as to stand. I think that's helpful for us to remember. And uh, we'll think about Ephesians 6 in a moment. There's a call to stand. There's not so much a call to advance and start fighting. There's just a call to stand and defend yourself as needed and together. 
uh, Jim Montgomery Boyce goes on to quote a Chinese evangelist, Watchman Nee, as he speaks about Ephesians chapter 6, putting on the whole armor of God, in which place Paul regularly says to withstand, to stand, to stand, to withstand, not be knocked over, not be run over is the idea. But this military imagery especially is seen in chapter 6 of Ephesians. And so Watchman Nee, speaking on chapter 6, is quoted by Jim Montgomery Boyce, says this. The difference between defensive and offensive warfare is this. That in the former, I have got the ground and only seek to keep it. Whereas in the latter, I have not got the ground and am in fighting in order to get it. And this is precisely the difference between the warfare waged by the Lord Jesus and the warfare waged by us. His was offensive. Ours is, in essence, defensive. By the resurrection, God proclaimed his son, Victor, over the whole realm of darkness. And the ground Christian won, he has given to Christ, excuse me, the ground Christ has won, he has given to us. We do not need to fight to obtain it. We only need to hold it against all challengers. I think that's pretty helpful. We stand firm. Christ has already won the battle. He's already bound Satan. We know he's going to throw him to the lake of fire. We know we're going to inherit the earth. We need to stand our ground. Christ has already won. Not to be moved from your calling and position in Christ as victors and more than conquerors. Not to allow families and church to be overtaken as we're called often to watch, to keep watch. We know what we have. We're called to protect it. We're called to stand up and protect ourselves from the attackers that he's been pointing out or those who aren't necessarily trying to hurt us but can bring, bring us down, particularly those who are quote-unquote Christians but are also actually the enemies of Christ, as he talks about in the cross in the last chapter. We are called upon to hold our ground. We're not necessarily called to go into the enemy camp, although there's the place for missions and evangelism, of course. But as we do, we need to recognize it's already Christ's. The whole world is already Christ. He's just coming back to finish the consummation of his kingdom. He's already defeated Satan on the cross and in the resurrection. We need to remember that our citizenship is in heaven. Chapter 3, verse 20, we saw that the word conversation uh, refers to an idea of citizenship as he spoke of earlier, I believe, chapter 1. We are citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And the kingdom of heaven has come in Christ. And he is advancing the kingdom. The gates of hell cannot prevail against it. But as he plants his kingdom everywhere in his work, wherever we find ourselves, whether it's the Philippian church or our church in San Diego or our uh, closer uh, brethren churches in Texas, Wisconsin, where have you, we got to claim our ground. We got to know it's in Christ, put our banner up over us. His banner is love. And we love one another in the Lord and we serve close to one another in the Lord. Nobody's going to take us out. Nobody's going to take us down if we stand together in love in the Lord. But we are called to stand. Because we are citizens, we recognize we are also soldiers protecting our kingdom. 
Christ's kingdom. And so we are to stand. That's the imperative. Uh, The context we'll be looking at in a moment, how we stand, how we manage to stand. But we are called to stand for Christ, in Christ. We're called to stand up to, to stand for, to stand against attack by the enemy. Charles Erdman says, They must be loyal and steadfast. They must be true to their Christian ideals and profession. Look at chapter 1, verses 27 to 28. He's already spoken in this kind of military idea and called us to do the same. And remember, he's writing to them at the beginning with a thank you letter for their gift and their letter of their concern to know how he's doing and how Epaphroditus is doing. They're all standing together, though they're not close together in proximity. This whole thing is about their mutual service together in Christ for many years advancing and serving the gospel together. Now remember, he planted the church with folks like Lydia and the young woman delivered from a demon and the jailer. You can imagine as the commentaries at the beginning of Philippian commentaries often highlight what a diverse group of people it was. All different walks of life, all different uh, you know, levels of life, you could say. All different backgrounds. And they're called to work together as one and the same, as brethren. Philippians 1, 27 to 28 still applies to us. Only let your conversation, that is your citizenship, be as it becometh the gospel of Christ, that whether I come and see you or else be absent, I may hear of your affairs, that ye stand fast in one spirit, with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel, and nothing, and in nothing terrified by your adversaries, which is to them an evident token of perdition, but to you of salvation and that of God. Notice this call to stand together, one mind, striving. There's so much there in that verse which almost feels like a commentary of the whole letter to the Philippians, at least as far as we've come so far. He, he has called us on more, one than, on more than one occasion to stand fast together, striving together, holding ground that has been established together as this missionary church that he can't be right now, but whether I can get to you or whether I can't, may I hear that you have continued to stand fast together. You're always going to have people from outside and within trying to knock you down and frankly trying to knock you out. And you got to be able to go all the rounds and take it and stand. And you do that together. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 13. Watch ye. Stand fast in the faith. Again, stand firm in the faith. Quit you like men. Be strong. And as I've pointed out to you in other sermons, that quit you like men... In the Greek is one word, and it means act like a man. I frankly think in our culture and in much of the church culture, that needs to be said a lot. Act like a man. But it isn't just for men. We're to act like men. We're to be strong. We're to stand fast and protect our family. And sometimes you hear much more courageous women doing that kind of thing, especially in the Christian faith. We're called to stand fast and be strong. We are in the world, but not of it. 
and there's no neutrality. The world is run by Satan, and he doesn't want Christ to take it from him. Christ has taken it from him, but he's going to do everything he can to try to take it back, at least in some way, at least from one church. Revelation chapter 12 tells that story. 2 Thessalonians 2, verse 15. Therefore, brethren, stand fast and hold the traditions which ye have been taught, whether by word or our epistle. Have that in view with our Westminster standards and all that we've inherited, all the land that had already been claimed back by Christ in the Reformation. Stand fast and hold it. So many are going to criticize how we try to seek and serve the Lord according to all his commands. Make us feel embarrassed, not want to join on, call us extreme. Uh, we should just say I prefer to be called Puritan, at least a Puritan wannabe, please. Remembering that the word Puritan was originally a derogatory term, as was Calvinist. We stand fast. We hold fast what we have, what Christ has given. And we stand fast together as brethren. Hold your ground in Christ's love and hold one another up in the love of Christ. Hold one another up in the love of Christ. The way you stand and hold ground in the Lord, as the verse says, is with the Lord's people. With loving connection and mutual service, which is often, as we've seen through the previous chapters, self-denial, humility, and that self-denial is even often when we may not agree on something. But we're willing often to uh, be peaceful dissenters and continue on together for all we have in common, and having particularly in common the mind of Christ. That's how we stand. You can't stand alone very well. You've got a big troop of people coming after you. Have fun trying to stand against that as a solitary soldier. <laughs> you know, armies, that's the reason there's armies. There's militia. There are navies. They are not an airplane. <laughs> They're the air force against the forces of darkness against us. You know, Roman soldiers would stand close together. One of the reasons they were so effective to take over others even bigger and scary, I would say, themselves is they were so organized. And particularly in battle, they would gather with their shields when there was a lot of uh, danger coming towards them, say arrows, people with spears. They would gather close together with their shields, close together, almost welded by their mutual citizenship together. And they would create a wall, a, an almost impenetrable wall. But they couldn't do that without one another. Together, holding fast close together, they stood their ground and most often won for quite a long time. A wall of defense with themselves tightly knit together out of love for country. Dearly beloved, Paul addresses them tonight. Dearly beloved, twice in the text. As in chapter 2, Verse 12, wherefore, my beloved. He calls them beloved twice in the one verse as he's calling them to stand fast together. That's how we're going to do it. 
and he calls us brethren. Now, you see him refer to us as brethren often, chapter 1, verse 12, chapter 3, verses 1, 13, and 17. Our verse tonight, and then look ahead to verse 8 of chapter 4. He is calling them brethren constantly. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. He sets that very familiar verse up with brethren. In our verse tonight, he calls them brethren after calling them beloved twice. Dennis Johnson writes, with the exception of his epistle to the Ephesians, where brothers appears only in the closing benediction, Paul addresses every church as brothers. When he calls the Philippians my joy and crown, Paul shows that the prize for which he runs is not an individualistic achievement, but the redemption of Christ's whole church. And that's what he's talking about in the letter, and that's clearly the concern of the Philippians. The whole church, the whole church holding ground and holding fast. Notice Paul longed for them. He says the same thing in chapter 1, verse 8. I long for you, and there he says, with my with bowels, you know, you know, my gut. I just love you so much. I miss you so much. I'm so wanting to see you hold fast. I I long for you. It has this idea of a great deep desire within. And he says that again in our verse tonight. My brethren dearly beloved and longed for. This letter is a particularly close letter because they've worked so well with him over time. He's about to correct them in the, in the next two verses. And it's something he's been building towards and alluding to. Because he doesn't want them to come to the place of the Corinthian church or the Galatian church. And you'll notice next time that that problem is disunity. Between two ladies that their names are named. And their names reveal they were probably pretty high class in the city. He's calling them all dearly beloved and brethren that he deeply longs for. This is why he's writing much of what he's saying. Because how much he cares about them. My joy, he says, you are not only my brethren, my dearly beloved. I long for you deeply in my bowels and for your continuation. But you are my joy. He rejoices in his fellow servants. Verse 2. These are all terms of endearment, of course, right? Expressing deep affection, deep appreciation. He has for them, he wants them to have for one another so that they can stand fast. Because if they're going to stand fast, it's got to be together. Which is why Jesus says, has been quoted by famous people in our country over the years, a house divided will fall. That's why Satan's always after it. That's why Paul's constantly calling to work on unity, work on working together, holding fast. We are not going to stand fast, divided. And he tops it all off with, you are my crown. You can look back to chapter 216 for a similar thought. You are my crown. Now remember, he's been talking about this race. You are my crown, he says. 
Charles Urban reminds us that this is a victory wreath in, in the Greek athletic games, you know, the, the little crown of branches, you know, uh, put on their head at the, at the Olympic games we see today, reflecting this very long and old tradition. Uh, they would put that for the victors, of course. But for him as a victor, his victory is you. You know, just as Jesus warns about false shepherds and prophets, and you'll know them by their fruit, and the fruit is the kind of people they have, Paul is rejoicing in them as his crown because his missionary work there has brought them to be a church and they've been able to work together for a long time. His people are his crown. As he's racing towards Christ more and more, a lot of what it is is building the church and seeing these people be his crown. The victory wreath on his head is them. That's how much they mean to him. That's how much he values them. And that's how much he wants them to think of one another, as he's spoken of in different ways in chapter 2. Kenneth West says, it is given, this, this crown is given also for military valor. Courage in battle. Again, they are the crown. He's won to the Lord Jesus while running after more. He doesn't want to see that crown fall to the ground. He's concerned they stand fast and hold it up in Christ. They are so close, there is no gap for anyone to stand in, you see. They are brothers. They are beloved. Uh, They are to be thinking that way about one another. They're so close to one another that there's technically almost, you could say, there is no gap to stand in. They've got their shields close. They're ready to stand. He's just encouraging them to remember to stand and to do that, to be close together, be tight. They care for one another deeply because the love of Jesus, they really love Jesus' people. And so they hold fast because they don't want to see Jesus' people be torn down. They don't want to see the house of, the, of God be broken down. You know, you ever go and see an old church in ruins and some rural place where so much of it is just broken down and ivy's growing all over it and within it and it's rotting. He doesn't want to see that in terms of the people of God in uh, the Philippian church. And the way they'll avoid that is staying together. Secure the gospel and the kingdom. That's much of chapter one. They've been doing this. He says, keep doing it. Keep doing it. They share a love for fellow citizens and fellow soldiers. And they're called to be finishing the race together and standing upon their mutual inheritance, preserving it for one another. It has been given you all by the Lord Jesus Christ. So stand in Jesus Christ and your security in him. Stand firm in Christ together. Beloved, let your attitude toward one another be 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 14. As also ye have acknowledged us in the past, that we are your rejoicing, even as ye also are ours in the day of the Lord Jesus. You see that mutual, corporate, our crown, our victory is really in one another making it in this race together and holding fast with what Christ has already given us. You're our joy, we're your joy, 
in the end when the Lord Jesus comes. That's what it's all about. We're not just looking to get a get-out-of-hell-free card and to get to heaven on our own and have, a, have some apartment out in the outskirts of the promised land and nobody ever come talk to us. No, we're not supposed to be hermits as Christians. We're supposed to be good neighbors with one another. Love our neighbor as ourselves, especially those who are our brethren. We're members of one body in Christ. And so our joy is really all wrapped up in one another, holding fast and making it together. 1 Thessalonians 2, 19 to 20. For what is our hope, our joy, or crown of rejoicing? Are not even ye in the presence of our Lord Jesus Christ at his coming? For ye are our glory and joy. This is what Paul's saying. I'm just, you're my glory. I'm just so happy to see you standing there. They're not necessarily big. But he's so thankful because they're real. And the Lord used him in it. You're part of my joy and crown. Let's finish this race together. Let's hold fast. Stand our ground together. You know, I was reading a, a, a book recently. Um, an old book by Thomas Smith on another issue, and uh, I'll spare you the context mostly because I'm still trying to understand it, <laughs> and also I don't want to get distracted, but here's what stuck out to me. One of the men he was referencing uh, was a presbyter, and he was, he was arguing um, uh, you know, in, a, in a higher standing, and he happened to note it was really an argument to prove something else, but it stood out to me. He said he had a church of 17 people. And it seemed he was a significant leader. I found that encouraging. I hope you do. That's what we should care about. The crown should be the people who last, who stand, who keep running the race until the end, who we will be rejoicing together in heaven. I'm not saying everyone that doesn't uh, work with us properly isn't going to be there, but what I think it's safe to say this. <laughs> we're more likely to eat together regularly up there. You know, I mean, down here, I guess. I mean, we have the kind of familiarity that isn't going to go away. We'll have all of that bond of being brothers together, serving together, a band of brothers, in a special way in this particular branch of the vine of Christ. And what a joy it is to be able to work together and help one another get through the river at the end into the celestial city, knowing we'll be there, we'll follow and we'll rejoice together. That's our crown. That's our glory. It's not I get to go get out of hell. It's not even just I get to get to heaven. I get to go to heaven with my brethren as we fought the good fight and didn't let anybody take the ground Christ had won and given to us. You don't stand alone. Your crown and glory is everyone else in Christ. Dennis Johnson writes, The source of our strength to stand is in the Lord. And of course, to stand in the Lord is to stand with his body, as his body. He goes on to say, The source of our strength to stand is the Lord, and the key to victory is unity. And as we think back through where we've been, boy, is that what Paul is hammering. The key to victory is is unity. Doesn't mean we're not going to have struggles. Doesn't mean we're not going to have problems. That's what all the epistles are basically about in one way or the other. How to keep us together. 
How to keep us standing for the gospel truth. As his church visibly witnessing in the dark world as the light of the world. I mean, after all, the next two verses are going to be about correcting a few ladies and encouraging them to get a little better in unity because they've been such co-workers with her. Him, fellow, uh, fellow yoked, uh, something like that. He says, uh, he's, you know, he's not, they're not done, we're not done, he's not done, but there's the concern to hold fast together or divided will die. Beloved, you stand alongside one another in Christian love that keeps us standing together in Christ's love. Instead of turning against one another. The current concern again in verses 2 to 3. An important thing to learn from this text. It's a rather simple thing, and it's not my main application, but an important thing I think we can gather from this text. Called to stand fast, recognizing it's that we stand fast together in the love of Christ and love for one another as beloved brethren whom we long for. I'm pretty sure you agree with me that we're longing for the renters to be back already, and they haven't even left. Isn't that true, how we are with one another? I mean, I think about that with all you guys when you go on vacation. You might, I'm glad for you. Or if you have to be sick, but I just long to see you again. I long to be back together. I hope you heard, Renners, there was a lot of amens over there. <laughs> and I know they feel the same. They lamented in a sense of not being able to be with us at the Harvest Feast. They long to be with you as they have for over 40 years. Or was it 50 years, did you say? Yeah. That's the kind of thing, standing fast. And by the way, uh, I've been thinking about Elder Renner a lot in this sermon because he just constantly... Uh, refers to me individually as brother. That's, he knows my name. I've been here 13 years, but he almost always calls me brother. <laughs> and it's just beautifully reflecting this text and how we're to be thinking and countenancing one another, working with one another, working through things with one another. And uh, when he will often send a message to the elders, he'll almost always refer to us as brothers. And this man has stood fast here for a very long time against a lot of challenges in the church. An important thing to learn in this text is this. Often call one another brother and sister. I think it's appropriate for me to suggest that. I don't want it to be arbitrary. I don't want you to feel awkward. But I think it would be good to practice calling one another brother and sister. Not every time. Nobody nobody keep a tally. (laughs) But at least to communicate to yourself and to one another, that's what we are. We are the brethren in the church of Paradise Hills. And Paul is calling upon us to stand fast together in love. And that's how we'll stand, together in love. As brothers and sisters in Christ, acting and speaking like it. For the church is the family and household of God. And we are to protect it together through the powerful love of Christ and standing up in it so we are not dragged down one by one. So we're not dragged out one by one until we become that church abandoned, broken down with a bunch of weeds growing in its middle. We are to stand together so that we stay together. Beloved brethren, in the Lord Jesus Christ, stand firm together in Christian love. Again, that is the message for you this evening. Stand firm together in Christian love. Let us pray.
Almighty God, we have heard your call upon us, and we pray that you help us to respond and fulfill it. We were called upon to love you with everything in us this morning. And now the second commandment is essentially here tonight, the second greatest, to love one another as ourself. To not uh, uh, bear grievances, not hold on to grudges, but to love one another as ourself. To stand fast, to stand firm, together as one body, to stand against the enemies of Christ. Lord, help us to recognize there will be attacks, there will be uh, uh, problems and difficulties, ultimately to cause division. Let us remember all that Paul has said, and let us remember we're brothers and sisters, and family is family, and love is love, and Christ is Lord. Help us to stand firm together in Christ and in Christian love, and we pray as you taught us to pray together, saying, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Sorry, I think we usually say debts and somehow trespasses came out of me. My, my old Lutheran upbringing came out of me because I'm tired, I think. But uh, same thought, same idea. Notice how much our, us, was in that prayer.